sharing their faith. And they all affirm the key belief of Jesus' humanity, what's often called the incarnation. And so every time we say a creed together, you and I are reaffirming our commitment to Christ's incarnation. So in the Apostles' Creed, for example, we state that Jesus was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary. That one has traditionally been used in morning prayer services in Anglican circles. Whereas the next one, the Nicene Creed, is used in the communion service, it declares belief in the Jesus who by the power of the Holy Spirit was incarnate of the Virgin Mary and became man. Now, our services were originally put together by Archbishop Thomas Cranmer back in the Reformation period in the 1500s in England. And he incorporated um, three ancient creeds into the services, the Apostles, the Nicene and the Athanasian. And the reason for it comes out in Article 8 of the doctrinal basis of the Anglican Church, which is called the 39 Articles, which Cranmer put together. In that article, it affirms that these three creeds ought thoroughly to be received and believed. Why? For they may be proved by the most certain warrants of Holy Scripture. In other words, the creeds were in there because they were a summary of Christian belief. Now this morning, we're considering one of those certain warrants of Holy Scriptures. This passage has lots in it, but we're just going to be concentrating mainly on what it says about the incarnation. That is how it shows that the incarnation, that Jesus is truly and fully human, is essential to the Christian faith. So we're going to be looking at that, the, both those passages that were read for us from Hebrews 2, which of course is grounded in Hebrews in Psalm 8. So we're going to drift between those two passages. Now you'll recall that the author of Hebrews is writing to stop Christians from sort of drifting away from Christian faith, from Christian practice, particularly in exposure to persecution. Now, the way he writes, he wants to achieve it by some teaching in depth, teaching in depth about the superior Christ, the Son of God, who is the faithful high priest. In other words, he's the one that fulfills everything from the Old Testament, all of God's promises. And of course, as Hebrews began, Jesus is the Son of God who is the final word of God. God spoke in these last days by his Son. So he's got teaching, but interspersed, as we saw last week, are warnings. Warnings about how dangerous it is to reject God and the Christ that he sent. And so when he puts those two things together, he then urges his readers to hold fast to the superior Christ to the Son of God, and so not be tempted into drifting into what seems to be security, the security of Judaism. So let's uh, start, and we're going to look at the first part of our passage, uh, which I've titled, Jesus, the Representative Man. So as you move from the warning passage in the opening four verses, you come to this passage which has a lot of teaching about the Incarnation and how it's essential for Jesus' earthly ministry. And so one of the things he'll need to clarify is the relationship between the Son and angels, because that's already taken up some um, space in the letter so far. 
and then speak of the eternal son as the high priest perfected through suffering. Now, what's the sort of reason for the way he's approaching things? Well, I think it's because if you just stood back and looked at the humiliation of the son in his true humanity, the humiliation as he suffers and dies, then it would be obvious to say, well, he's inferior to the angels, isn't he? So the author's got to show how that perspective isn't the whole picture when we come to think about Jesus. And that's why the author at this point explores Psalm 8, a hymn of praise for God's handiwork in creation. And as you listen to that psalm, you could have seen how it began with the wonder of creation in those opening verses and took us right through to the insignificant but remarkable dignity of man. But the crucial question that the psalmist asks, which is there in verse 4 in the psalm and verse 6 in our passage, is this. What is man that you, that is God, are mindful of him? In the wake of looking at this incredible, enormous creation, what is puny man like in the relationship to that? And so Psalm 8 reflects on the intention of the creator from Genesis 1 where man is made in God's image, designed for dominion over the created order. Man is created male and female, given dominion, be fruitful and multiply and rule over things. But of course we know that sin enters, and it comes very quickly in the Bible story, isn't it, in Genesis 3. Sin enters, and so it mars, it, it distorts everything. It distorts God's creation design. And so we don't see man ruling over everything. The author of Hebrews <clears throat> is quoting Psalm 8 to highlight Jesus as, in a sense, the representative man, the man who really does fulfil this psalm. And so for Jesus, the Son, his incarnation at one level means, according to verse 7, he's made a little lower than the angels, but for a little while. Because that's not the end of the story with God coming from heaven to earth. Because Jesus is the representative man of Psalm 8. He is fulfilling what the psalm is on about. And so God has crowned him with glory and honour, putting everything in subjection under his feet. And that enthronement, so to speak, took place when Christ is exalted to the right-hand side of God. Now that was predicted by Psalm 110, verse 1. And that's picked up both in the beginning of Hebrews, where it talks about after he'd made purification for sins, he sat down at the right-hand side of majesty on high. And then later on in chapter 1, it quotes from Psalm 110 as well about the same thing. So when we look at Jesus, we see him fulfilling God's design for man in creation and displaying what God intended for mankind from the very beginning. So the author is saying Jesus is that representative man, that everything that creation talks about is fulfilled in him. Then in the next section from second half of verse 8 to 13, he's talking about Jesus the man who saves. And so he does this by explaining a little bit more about Psalm 8. Let me read second half of verse 8 again. Now, in putting everything in subjection to him, 
he left nothing outside his control. At present we do not yet see everything in subjection to him, but we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus. We see him crowned now with glory and honour because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. You see, how will Psalm 8 be finally and completely fulfilled? In Jesus, the representative and exalted man who in his incarnation experiences the suffering of death. Though his humiliation appears for a time, it appears for that time to make him inferior to the angels, that process has a very important purpose. It's for the purpose of salvation. So Jesus dies to taste death, that is God's judgment on sin. So he tastes the painful finality of death for everyone. His death was necessary for his exaltation, his crowning with glory and honour, and hence his rule over all things. And that salvation purpose, the author then spells out a bit more in verse 10, where he says, For it was fitting that he, that is God, for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the pioneer of their salvation perfect through suffering. Sometimes with English translations, they try to make it as if um, everything is applicable for everyone at every time. And in so doing, it often loses the connections. And so reason for, say, something like ESV maintaining and many sons to glory is to provide the link between the Son of God and us as the sons of God. And so it's not just using masculine language for the sake of using it. It's really to make sure we see the connections with the Son of God, that we are sons of God because of the Son of God. Well, um, in the first century, of course, the notion of a crucified Lord was a humiliating scandal. See, when the Jews looked at someone hanging on the cross... They immediately thought in terms of Old Testament and thought, well, he's cursed because he's hanging on a tree. And Paul in Galatians picks up that um, theme as well to talk about it. So for Jews, a crucified Lord is ridiculous. A crucified Messiah is absolutely ridiculous. For pagans in the first century, they just thought it was sheer madness, the whole idea of crucifixion. And so to place God into the world of suffering was just totally inappropriate. It just wasn't on. But despite the offensive nature of Christ's suffering and death, it's exactly the way God chose to operate. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. So while the author of Hebrews gives it a central place to highlight how important it is, and, of course, it's the key to stopping his friends from drifting away from Christian faith. It was fitting then for God to lead Christ through suffering to death 
So he became the trailblazer, the new leader, the pioneer, the one who carries his people to their final destination of glory. This is the glory God created men and women for, the glory of life everlasting in God's presence. And we'll receive that glory in the heavenly realm, the realm where Jesus has gone before us on our behalf. In Hebrews, that's picked up in chapters 4, 6, and again in chapter 9. God's action of setting Christ's suffering within his cosmic plan of salvation is not a divine failure, but rather it shows the accomplishment of the one with power over all things, enabling him to perfectly fulfil God's plan from the beginning. So when the Son became man, it involved a temporary inferiority to the angels, as verse 9 talks about. But this was not the whole picture. That's the point of what the author is writing here. Because God's purposes for humanity, revealed in Psalm 8, find their final and full fulfilment in Jesus, the Son, and hence to all who belong to the Son. See, our assurance of future glory is guaranteed by the present glory of Jesus when he's exalted. But verse 10 has a curious statement to it as well, doesn't it? <clears throat> the author states Christ is made perfect through suffering. Now the theme of perfection is a prominent one in Hebrews. It's there in chapter 2 as we've seen but it occurs again in chapters 5, 6 and 7 and then more in chapters 9, 10, 11 and 12. So you can't miss the theme. Now the author obviously isn't meaning some moral perfection of Jesus, moral attainment, because we know the scriptures testify to Jesus being sinless. 1 Peter 2 does that, but also Hebrews picks up that as well. But rather the, the word has the meaning of being qualified for something. That is... Christ's obedience and suffering qualifies him to accomplish salvation through his death. And the same language about being made perfect is uh, in chapter 10 used to speak about believers being made perfect. And the sense there being that as we grasp hold, as we appropriate the forgiveness of sins achieved by the perfected Christ, then we'll enjoy all the eternal benefits of life and glory and rule. So the point he's driving at is that Christ's incarnation was vitally necessary, not just for the Son to identify with and then suffer for humanity, but because his death has a unique purpose. He dies to bear the sins of many and so bring eternal redemption for all who place their trust in him. Christ's incarnation makes possible his substitutionary death on our behalf. And so some of the early discussions that surrounded creeds was really to emphasise this very point and to establish that as a key doctrinal stance for true Christian belief. But then as the chapter ends in verses 14 to 18, it's almost like there's another outburst of concentrated teaching on Christ once more. Let me read verse 14 again. 
Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he, that is Christ, himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Now, the author's spotlighting three amazing truths about the incarnation. So, common humanity, that is, the children whom God has given to Christ share a common humanity. So, Christ must share the same flesh and blood to accomplish God's salvation plan. Hence, Jesus becomes human, substituting for us so that his death destroys the one who has the power of death, that is the devil. Common humanity, Christ's humanity, Christ's victory. You see, if there's no incarnation, then there's no substitutionary or atoning death. And so humanity would still have to face up to God's judgment on their sin. Hence, we'd never be free in our lives from the devil's grasp. The incarnation was a necessary step in the perfecting of Jesus so that he could free us from Satan's grasp and so deliver all those who through fear of death are subject to lifelong slavery. Friends, Jesus as a person like us triumphs over death itself. In his death, death dies. And Easter morning's empty tomb signals to the world the end of death's all-encompassing march. To free people from the terror and anguish of death is a truly incredible accomplishment. It calls for trust and confidence in the one who achieves such freedom. There's more to it, isn't it? Because Jesus' victory is also the defeat of Satan. Remember, it's Satan who uses death to keep people in his hopeless grasp. At great personal cost and suffering, Jesus destroys the enemy and releases the enemy's captives. So I cannot but ask, have you experienced this freedom by turning from your sin and trusting in Jesus. If not, delay is hazardous. You'll never receive a better offer. Back to verse 16. The author is saying something like this. I'm sure you'll agree with me, it's not angels that Christ takes hold of but the offspring, the seed of Abraham. In other words, people. Not angels that Christ is taking hold of, but people. So as the author writes this, he's trying to make certain that his readers have absorbed the significance of Christ's action. For Christ is the pioneer, the leader, taking hold in the and the word being used here is, uh, has a sense of a strong action which ensures deliverance. I think in the Greek version of the Old Testament, I think it was used in the Exodus. That strong action 
ensuring deliverance. So, so Christ, the pioneer leader, takes hold of his followers, his children, on the way to glory. It'll ensure it takes place. What an incredible benefit and blessing that is, isn't it? Absolutely terrific. And then as this chapter ends, there's, there's still a rich banquet to feast upon. It's just one thing after another going through this chapter. So because Christ is fully human, since he shares all the experiences of human life, he becomes our merciful and faithful high priest in God's service. That embraces a whole heap of background in the Old Testament, but it's also what he picks up later on in the letter to fill that out. Merciful and faithful high priest. But also he is our propitiation or atoning sacrifice, depending on what English version you've got. You know, it's the one who turns away God's wrath and so enables us to be cleansed of our sin, the slate wiped clean, so that we can stand before God as forgiven people. It's what the creeds call salvation. And the key benefit that the author talks about here of Christ's work is his help when we're tempted. Because he suffered when he was tempted. His suffering was, in fact, the source of his temptation. And he was tested to the limit. Yet he remained faithful. Not my will, but your will be done. And so he's perfectly qualified to help us when we're tempted to sin. Hence the first readers of Hebrews should place their full confidence in Jesus. Isn't it? On the basis of all that, why would you want to be trying to deal with something other than Jesus? Why would you want to hold on to a shadow and neglect the reality? doesn't make sense. Because Jesus has persevered and overthrown the enemy he won't leave us in the coming crisis. For the first readers, it's this sense of persecution that's around the horizon. They haven't yet been persecuted so that they've died, but there is this great sense of persecution coming. He won't leave them. And because he's conquered death, no force can resist him as the perfected pioneer standing with his brothers and sisters. Remember that? He's not ashamed to call them his brothers and sisters. And it won't stop him from bringing them all safely into the heavenly destination. Friends, Christ's incarnation is essential to our faith. By identifying with humanity, Jesus participates in our life as the perfect high priest. As a result, Jesus can deal with the most fundamental issue we all face, the problem of sin, and God's righteous judgment on that sin. It's only as Christ shares our common humanity, dying on the cross, that we can enter God's forever family. The family, as spelled out in this passage, of those glorified, verse 10, sanctified, verse 11, liberated, verse 15, and purified from their sins, verse 17. What an encouragement to know Christ's help is there in times of temptation. What a marvellous truth to cling on to and trust in. So whenever we say creeds in our services, 
they are there to really remind us of who Christ truly is. To remind us of the necessity of believing in Christ as both truly man and, of course, fully God. To remind us that the incarnation is essential for our salvation. Let me pray. Dear God, we thank you again that in your love and mercy you sent Jesus into our world to be born, to grow up, to experience human life in all its varieties and to finally stand in our place on the cross. Father, we thank you for that and help us never to waver from knowing that Jesus is both truly man and fully God and that he will return. The man, Jesus, will return at the end of the age. And we thank you and praise you in his name. Amen.